0: You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible.
1: Let's flip the calendar back to the beginning of the year. Let's go back to January.
0: A dangerous virus is spreading rapidly in China, and US officials are very worried that it could come here. China has more than 200 confirmed cases of coronavirus, it's called, which produces pneumonia-like symptoms. Three people have already died from this illness, which has spread to at least three other Asian countries.
2: The warning from the CDC,
3: the coronavirus is spreading so quickly around the globe, it may only be a matter of time before it begins rolling across the U.S. with the potential to become a
1: pandemic. A concerns about the deadly coronavirus officially hitting the U.S. Here's what we know. A Washington state resident fell ill after returning from Wuhan, China, where the outbreak began. Breaking news. The first death from coronavirus here in the United States. A man in his 50s dying from COVID-19 infection in Washington state. Authorities describe him as an at-risk patient, but say he had no apparent travel to China. You remember what happened next. The school closures, first a trickle, then a flood. The workplaces shutting down, governors issuing their safer-at-home orders, the debate over masks, learning what Zoom is. As the pandemic spring has turned into the pandemic summer, and with no sign of abating once fall arrives, Americans are beginning to grapple with how the disease will change daily life forever.
3: Across the country, empty streets and empty office towers don't just mean a change in how we work. Entire communities have relocated to new places and Facebook have announced that most of their workers will be at home for the rest of the year, but Twitter has announced that its workers will be at home from now on, and that's going to have an enormous impact, far beyond just empty desks in a building like this.
1: Reopen the economy. It's entered the pantheon of American political catchphrases. And while white-collar workers may reap the benefits of a post-COVID world, one in which employers recognize that, with a powerful enough internet connection, anyone can work from home, Blue-collar workers won't see those benefits. The same blue-collar workers who haven't been able to telecommute. The essential workers who, day in, day out, have put themselves at risk to keep vital services running as the pandemic has spread across the country. But it's not just in the workplace. Medicine and education are also being rethought in real time. Come September, school will look radically different than it did a year ago. But who are the students who stand to gain from at-home learning? How can we ensure that all students, regardless of race and family wealth, can thrive while learning digitally? And how do we make sure that doctor's appointments conducted over the internet are accessible to everyone who needs care? That medicine doesn't just become a privilege for those with high-speed broadband, One day the pandemic will end. But before that happens, we need to make sure that the world it leaves in its wake is a just and equitable one. Finding the answers to these questions is the first step.
3: Thanks for joining our podcast. I'm Darrell West, Vice President of Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution, and co-author with Brookings President John Allen of a new book about AI entitled Turning Point, policy making in the era of artificial intelligence we live at a time when technology is accelerating at a very rapid pace ai is being deployed in education healthcare and urban services uh, we're seeing food delivery robots automated stores and factories the rise of remote work and a shift to online education uh, e-commerce and telemedicine At the same time, we are living through a COVID pandemic that has cost many lives, disrupted the economy, and blown major holes in the social safety net. The coronavirus has raised fundamental questions regarding the current situation and how to address major problems. Today, we are pleased to be joined by two distinguished experts, Makeda Henry-Nickey is a Fellow in Governance Studies at Brookings, where she specializes in workforce issues. Uh, She's done very interesting work on the COVID impact on technology and the workforce and what we need to do to protect workers. Annalise Koger is the David Rubenstein Fellow in Metropolitan Policy at Brookings, where she focuses on workforce and economic development. She's conducted field research with Makeda recently on how employers are deploying technology, and she has written about the economic impact of COVID and the need to strengthen our social safety net. So let me start with uh, Makeda. Uh, COVID has accelerated the shift to remote work, online education, e-commerce, and telemedicine, among other developments. Uh, These trends were already unfolding before COVID, but they are moving even faster as a result of the pandemic. What has COVID's impact been on the way people work, shop, and learn?
0: First, thank you, Daryl, for inviting me to this conversation. I'm happy to join the podcast today with Annalise. So I think, you know, there are a number of critical elements or, or ways in which COVID has reshaped work, uh, the way we shop, and certainly the way that our children learn. In terms of working, you know, this mandatory lockdown measure, these measures mean that companies are now realizing that remote work is perfectly achievable and can even boost productivity amongst workers. I think what that means is that we are likely to see companies hiring from a broader geography. In some measures, that might mean hiring a more diverse workforce. Now, while COVID has accelerated, you know, this sort of cultural shift, I think, towards flexible work, the growth of digital workplaces will undoubtedly deepen inequalities. So the structural digital divide means that a majority of Black and Hispanic workers will probably not be able to fully participate in the diversity dividends that I think are stemmed from these extensive adoptions of remote work. You know, a Dallas Fed uh, study showed that only just 38.8% of full-time workers have remote compatible jobs. So ostensibly, in in terms of work, you know, I think COVID makes white, high-paying jobs safe while exposing minority workers to the pandemic's, you know, worst effects. So hospitalizations, uh, death disparities, and of course, I think increased labor market separations. And so on on the educational front, right, COVID has highlighted the complexity of the digital divide in many school districts. You know, they've struggled with this instantaneous shift to remote learning. In many school districts, like I said, have struggled to adapt especially the under-resourced districts that have had very little funds to plug gaps for families without home-based internet connections or access to devices that are compatible with remote learning uh, modules. It, having a, start, a smartphone you know, doesn't mean that that device is well-suited to robust e-learning. I think you know, when you sort of step back, you know, I, this COVID has exposed you know, what I call a, the Gordian knot of inequality, and this implicates every aspect of society. If, you know, if we don't get these responses right, Daryl, to these challenges, I think we risk finding that millions of families will fall behind and uh, wealth and income gaps will certainly widen. And, and in terms of the, you know, educational uh, gaps that we're seeing, I, I fear that we risk losing an entire generation of young people of color.
3: I mean, those are important points about the structural shifts that are taking place and the risk that COVID is going to deepen the inequality. So Annalise, you analyze the economic impact of COVID and you've written extensively on this topic. What trends and patterns are you seeing and how are these issues playing out in local communities across America?
2: I've been monitoring uh, a few different areas. So one, is and I, I think most of the things that Makeda said are exactly right on. And what I'll try to do is, is give a little bit more of like what that actually looks like on the ground. So so one thing, is, she talked about Main Street businesses and, and Black and that's next business owners. What we saw in some of our interviews with workers and business owners and restaurants was just a, a total devastation of for for those in jobs where they're exposed to others every day and it was really uh, striking how quickly it descended on people and how a lot of people in that in those jobs are earning pretty low wages that fluctuate depending on demand so even before lockdowns happen you start to see things dropping and you know incomes dropping as a result and i think you know many americans don't have a lot of savings Others have been going to school and have doubled down on their interest in going back to school, but it's challenging given the current situation where you know they don't know if people are going to be in person or they're going to be remote. And I think it raises a lot of questions that you know we might be able to talk about later in terms of online learning. But I think one of the other things I'd like to highlight is that we've disinvested in the safety nets and the systems that mostly emerged starting after the Great Recession or the Great Depression in the 30s, including unemployment insurance systems, but also re-employment programs and programs that are designed to help people find a new job when they're displaced. And so I talked, for example, to one person who was working in an event venue as a barista, and she said that it took her 12 weeks to get her unemployment check from Washington DC's government. And one of the challenges is she she didn't have internet. So she had to call in to do her application and she she had to try every day for a week to reach them. And then once she did, they spelled her name wrong. And then that triggered an adjudication process that ended up taking a long time. And then she had to reach out to her city council member to try to help with her application. So 12 weeks later, she finally got a check. But in the meantime, you know, she described how it really put her under a lot of pressure. She wasn't sure if she'd have to move back in with her parents or her family members. You know, it was just really stressful. She was going to food pantries and things like that. So I do think that, you know, we haven't really been focusing enough in in our policy conversations about how do we build systems, especially if this is going to go on for, you know, two plus years of constant threat of lockdowns and outbreaks, you know, we need agile systems that are user friendly for people, but, you know, we've disinvested in them for more than 30 years. And so. And they're not even built, you know, a lot of them were designed to weed people out and not to help them get access to relief, which is the current real priority. And so I I think we have to do more uh, thinking and planning around how to get relief to people, how to help them. Like, let's say you have diabetes or a health condition that puts you at high risk and you're a bus driver, for example, and you interact with people all the time. You should be looking for a remote job right now because that is not safe.
3: Those are very important points. And as the COVID cases start to rise again, the devastation that you mentioned, particularly for low wage workers could actually intensify and uh, get uh, worse. And the point you made about disinvesting in our social uh, safety uh, net, you know we do need more agile systems, as you point out, and systems that are more user friendly. And of course, that's not what we have uh, right now. Now, I know uh, each of you did uh, some interviews with employers in California. So I'm just curious what you found, like what drives employer decisions about technology and how does that affect the kinds of skills they're looking for maybe Makeda we can start with you on that
0: I think it's important that we need to sort of follow and and trace, you know, race disaggregated employment so that we can understand who, you know, which groups are recovering and which groups are falling behind and what are the drivers, which very much implicates some of the findings coming out of those interviews. So for example, the latest unemployment rates that we have that were posted in June shows that, you know, we're seeing some slight declines in the unemployment groups across of unemployment rates, excuse me, across race groups. You know, the white unemployment rate has declined slightly to ten point one percent. Meanwhile, the black and Hispanic unemployment rates are staggeringly double digits at fifteen point four and four you know five percent, and that's like the largest you know gaps that we've recorded in five years. I think it's 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 important to understand and sort of set the context with you know where are things nationally, so that we can I think introduce some actionable nuance into you know what can be done to get workers back to work um, and do so in an ethical, responsible manner. So for African-Americans, you know, their unemployment rate was driven, that that slight decline was really driven by service, service workers coming back to work in, you know, bars and restaurants and retail stores. And, you know, what we saw in some of our work in California is that there's this dichotomy between sort of low-skill work and middle-skill and sort of high-skill work. There's all uh, job job creation coming out of these very small businesses that are accelerating their automation solutions. And for those that have these sort of blended models between, um, let's say, craft brewing and having, you know, staffing these massive, fully automated breweries and having, these sort of service hospitality um, on lines of business attached, you know, that's that kind of dichotomy that we really need to, you know, pay attention to right? So uh, a lot of our discussion is focused on, you know, what are, what are the implications of this uh, COVID pandemic and these unemployment rates for uh, low and enmo- low wage and minority workers. But I want to sort of think about, you know, uh, what other kinds of workers are also implicated here. And that's white collar workers, some of the very middle skilled jobs that Annalise and I saw that we thought were so promising uh, in terms of, you know, being more inclusive and, on. and. and be re- Representing accessible pathways for uh, non-traditional candidates to enter. So, for example, uh, machine technicians in a craft brewery, or perhaps with a, an, a drone aviation firm. You know, some some of some of the larger trends that we're seeing that have that risk drowning out, or you know, just wiping away all of that those kinds of I think benefits or improvements will really hinge on how are, you know, middle skill workers, you know, faring in this pandemic. So I just want to, you know, think it's, I want to underscore that point because it's important to recognize that this is not just about low-skill workers and those in the service sector, but, you know, this pandemic firmly implicates, you know, white-collar workers who are in services, service jobs as well. And
3: Annalise, uh, your uh, thoughts on the worker impact and uh, what you found in California?
2: Sure. I think one thing I would add to what Makeda said is that we've seen a lot of youth unemployment in this pandemic, which is very concerning because what we've learned from previous recessions and just, you know, events is that disconnection from the labor force at a young age can impact somebody throughout their lifetime earnings. And also that, you know, after the great recession, Black and Latinx people and women recovered more slowly from the recession in terms of earnings and employment than uh, white men. So I think it's very concerning that we have such high numbers of, of young people unemployed right now. Some estimates show, but for example, between age 16 to 19, it's around 30%. Which is, which is very scary. So I really think we have to think about that very, you know, think about the age of folks that are unemployed and how that might affect their entire lifetime. As far as our interviews with the employers and stakeholders in California go, so one thing that struck me is that the types of, employee, of technology that they were implementing were a lot more nuanced than a lot of the high-level conversations we typically see. For example, a lot of people talk about automation and artificial intelligence. But when we spoke with employers, a lot of times, the, t- the way they were using tech and talking about tech had more to do with you know, applying uh, a, a technology in a particular industry setting. So it could be machine learning for, for example, predicting crop, you know when the crop's going to be ready based on weather, But it might also be just using data science to make, you know, some operational supply chain decisions, or using biotech to develop new products, new food products, or new materials. And so, you know, there are genetic technologies, there's artificial intelligence applied to specific settings, there's automation, like uh, Makeda mentioned in breweries, for example. But but these choices are much wider than I think people understand. And, and sometimes the, it's not even a complex technology. It's more like, oh, our, our company decided to start adopting, you know, an, an, um, um, a new software like Salesforce to manage our sales process.
3: Uh, Makeda, you put out a report with John Hudak on social distancing in black and white neighborhoods in Detroit, and in it, you compiled mobile phone tracking data to look at the COVID impact on vulnerable communities. Uh, you used geolocation data from 90,000 devices. So could you describe those data and then tell us what you found when you analyzed that kind of information?
0: Yes, certainly. We were fortunate to have access to some mobile loca- location device data that was provided by a geodata aggregator called SafeGraph. I I think it's important to kind of back up first and describe what SafeGraph does and the kinds of data that we relied on to inform this research. So SafeGraph is an aggregator. And what they do is that they collect, you know, pings from millions of cell phone devices or smartphone devices from across the country. They aggregate these, these, these counts and provide, you know, just some basic descriptive statistics and, and counts across various uh, census block groups uh, across multiple cities. And so I, it's important to understand that we do not have any protected information in our possession. These The data that we relied on is completely anonymized. And I think that I want to make sure that people understand <laughs> that you know we were trying to be as ethical as possible by trying to answer this very important question on who is most likely in Detroit to social distance? And are there any sort of race and income dynamics that are driving disparities, perhaps? So, in fact, we did, as expected, find that in, in Detroit, black zip codes, predominantly black zip codes, were consistently unable to social distance over the you know the two months of uh, data that we looked that we looked at, and those rates varied and, you know, began to sort of widen over time. The the average disparity was almost 10% over the sample period. But more, and in, in, in addition to just this, these disparities in terms of who's most able to social distance in Detroit versus who isn't by color, we saw the same sort of pattern emerge across income. So essentially, there's this, you know, COVID forcing this collision between race and income to play out in the midst of a very, very dangerous pandemic that has, you know, implications, like I said, for you know, real public health issues. And so we then, you know, started to uh, try to unpack, you know, our, what are the types of drivers that perhaps might, you know, show up in, in in areas or communities with low rates of social distancing? What that what would that mean for correlations or cluster of, of correlations? Excuse me, with clusters of coronavirus cases showing up in, a, in a, a zip code? And found that, you know, as the rates of social distancing increased across uh, various zip codes, we found that there were lower instances of uh, coronavirus clusters, at least being reported in the data at the time. Time. And then, more importantly, we try to unpack this relationship of social distancing, coronavirus clusters, and perhaps you know where uh, essential workers tend to live in Detroit. And of course, as you know, as the clusters or the share of uh, certain occupational certain occupations, excuse me, increased. That sort of drove, you know, a rise in clusters, but certain occupations, for example, the essential workers, you know, those that we've talked about a lot in the media, food and retail prep workers, you know, grocery workers, but there are some other groups that emerged in this paper that we sort of need to uh, pay attention to where law enforcement workers, for example, live. So Annalise,
3: you put out a paper with Tracy Lowe on the COVID impact on restaurants how has COVID affected the food industry and what kinds of impact has it had on servers, cooks, and dishwashers?
2: That's a great question. Well, truly it's had a pretty devastating effect at all levels and not just for restaurants, but even for you know all the way up the supply chain for any food that was being consumed outside the home. So about half of the food, a little bit more than half food was consumed outside the home before the pandemic. and all of a sudden overnight that that switched to you know grocery stores and, and home-based food preparation and you know not things like even for example at Brookings we have a cafeteria and you know all of a sudden that consumption stopped and, and grinded to a halt. So you see food workers being affected all the way through the chain. Within restaurants, you know, we interviewed managers, business owners, and workers in the DC area right after everything started closing down. And really, the expanded UI has been a lifeline to a lot of those workers who, you know, needed to collect benefits, even even though it in many cases took a long time to get. When it did get, there were back payments and they could catch up on their rent payments, for example. I think one thing that People often don't consider is that tipped workers' incomes—about half of their tip income—is reported. So, uh, in all the statistics where people say, "Oh, they're getting you know 200% of their normal earnings," that's not actually true for tipped workers because their earnings are, are underreported so much that if you were to base their wage replacement on the percentage of that reported wage, they'd actually be getting a lot less relief in the Paycheck Protection Program was was allocated, it was very hard for many of those smaller companies to get a, access to that aid. And so I think in moving forward, I think we need to really focus on uh, community development finance institutions as a as entities that are already active in, in communities where there's a high share of, of Black and Latinx business owners, and really making sure that we're we're working with those partners on the ground to provide technical assistance and help people get access to loans, but also to the repayment process and getting help figuring out how all that works. For example, one of the business owners we interviewed told us that she's an immigrant from Mexico and she has a small you know, crepe stand in a mall and you know, it was very hard for her coming from another country to understand all the rules attached to that PPP program. Um, So I think technical assistance is really critical when you're thinking about small business.
3: So there have been important COVID ramifications for education and healthcare. So uh, many schools have shut down and shifted to online education. And in the medical area, a number of doctors have shifted to video conferencing and telemedicine. So Makeda, how have uh, schools and health providers been affected by COVID and what problems have you seen pop up?
0: So I think yeah, the response uh, from school districts and health providers, uh, f- of course, varies widely. And I think it's largely dictated by you know the attitudes of leadership to the pandemic, which on any regular day <laughs> ranges from you know, just irresponsible, casual, and to serious, engaged, and pro- proactive. You know, for school leaders, this the dilemma is, you know, rather complex, right? On the one hand, you've got the, this decision to keep schools closed, you know, that keeps children safe, reduces their exposure to infection. But on the other, you know, closed schools means that parents without telework adaptable jobs, they can't work, you know, which, and of course, that deepens and extends the recession. And then, you know, there's another sort of element to that. Very right? Closed schools mean that children from, you know, vulnerable home settings are, you know, they're a great risk for falling behind for, you know, a number of reasons. On the school front, a recently uh, released study out of Los Angeles showed that more than 50,000 Black and Latino middle high school middle and high school students didn't regularly participate in, you know, their uh, virtual classrooms. So whether it's Zoom or Google Class. And that sort of sh- uh, shows up in across, of course, income and 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 you know racial lines, but cr- it's 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 concerning when you see gaps as large as t- ten and twenty percentage points in terms of attendance, and having whites and 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 Asian students have much higher uh, engagement and participation rates. So for you know healthcare providers, I think we've seen you know the crisis emerge in a, in a, in a different dynamic, Um, you know, it certainly has overburdened the healthcare system and the least prepared systems were quickly overwhelmed. But while governors, you know, have moved resources and they've partnered with uh, entities such as the National Guard to construct these you know, field hospitals and implement other emergency measures, you know, these temporary solutions do very little to address, you know, the kind of systemic issues such as chronic underfunding, right, that has put our systems in these incredibly strained positions right now. In fact, uh, a Becca report just showed this year that already 42 hospital systems have filed for bankruptcy. And then you layer on top of that, you know, historic unemployment, and that means millions of workers who are at least attached to the healthcare system in some way are now at risk because 5.4 million of them have just lost coverage. So, you know, it, you know, COVID has placed, I think, incredible capacity and, and financial strains, both on hospital and, you know, our educational systems that will undoubtedly exacerbate, you know, racial disparities. And, you know, to Annalise's point, she, you know, talked about some of these solutions that we've had, had to lean on, extending UI benefits. The CARES Act has pr- provided, you know, very substantial funds for testing. And, you know, there are other stimulus measures that are under consideration in Congress But none of these, you know, do, you know, there are none of those, excuse me, are sufficient to address the adverse effects that I think will be with us for uh, the long haul.
3: Annalise, what worries you about the shift to online education and telemedicine?
2: I think my concern really about online education is that there seems to be this idea that we can all shift to online learning. And all of us can just, you know, engage in self-directed learning and complete that without much help. And that that will help, you know, just sort of solve the problem of (laughs) reskilling. It's like a silver bullet thing, you know, and all we need are, you know, we need LinkedIn learning or Google certificates, and then that that's going to solve the problem. And I think that that idea really ignores a lot of evidence that most learners need more structure and also need access to a, a wide range of things. Number one, they need access to a, you know, a faculty member or someone who can really coach them on, you know, when they hit something that they're struggling with to keep them on, on task, keep them focused. They also benefit when they're going in person to schools or to training, they're benefiting from access to professional networks, whether it's through peers or through the employer, their mentor, or their supervisor. And, you know, most people get their jobs through someone they know. So if people are not getting access to professional networks, that really constrains their access to jobs, especially good jobs. And especially for folks that are trying to move, you know, upward mobility, like move out of a low wage job into a better paying job, that that's very concerning to me. And then, you know, I think Finally, many people, there's a lot of evidence that suggests that many people in the US struggle to afford education and retraining, not just because the cost of education is high, but because it's the cost of not working and not being able to put food on the table, not having money for childcare. So a lot of other, you know, transportation, things like supportive services that help support student success, you know, it's not just about learning a skill through an online program it's it's all those other components that someone needs to be successful and i think you know we need to start really thinking about how people actually make career transitions and what's required the full suite of services with regard to healthcare I, one thing i will share is that you know i think it actually presents telemedicine you know when we first interviewed employers our collaborators Interviewed folks at one of the healthcare companies in California, and they said we, ha- we had a uh, five year plan to switch to telemedicine. And then they went back to them after the pandemic hit and they said, Well, we accelerated our five year plan to right now. <laughs> and so I actually think, you know, for things like telemedicine or even banking services, things like that, there will be a rapid shift to accelerate that shift to online. And that, that's good in some ways, because it might help, you know, there's there have been a lot of tech layoffs in, in the Bay Area where we did these interviews, and maybe that will help absorb some of those tech tech workers. And so if you have areas that don't have broadband, you have ple- people that don't have enough devices or that don't have, you know, home internet that's fast enough to do some of these functions, then that, that means... And if you don't know how to use internet effectively or to protect your privacy, and you're not really sure, comfortable using those technologies, then that's a real concern.
3: We've outlined a number of COVID related problems, but I wanna turn to possible remedies. At Brookings, we like to focus on solutions and not just the problems. Each of you has found major holes in the social safety net and negative impacts across racial groups and for frontline workers. What do each of you think we need to do in order to improve the situation? And Makeda, I'll start with you on that.
0: So you're right in terms of pointing out that our social safety net is fractured and outright broken in many parts. And we need to sort of think about rebuilding a functional, I think, social safety net that effectively closes gaps and is much more equitable in its, you know, reconstituted state and and sort of really particularly focused and targeted to minority uh, communities, including undocumented uh, immigrants as well. So I think the CARES Act, you know, Darrell was an important emergency legislation and it provided critical backstops for, you know, vulnerable families. But we had, you know, just a a wide array of just badly managed, you know, program implementation. The Paycheck Provider Program here sort of comes to mind. And then, you know, we we grossly underestimated, you know, the extent of this uh, public health and economic crisis that has ensued since then. So I want to sort of first sort of step back and say that it's important to recognize that the CARES Act was was a good first step. But the funding target set in that legislation should be a floor you know, not an upper bound on the price tag for the next round of economic relief. And I fear that all of the discussions thus far are pointing in the opposite direction. You know, we need to sort of think about uh, ways to partner with communities of color particularly, you know, community uh, organizers as well to collaboratively address, you know, policies, programmings, and uh, resources needed to protect and buffer hard-hit communities. We also need to prioritize, you know, the location of resources, uh, testing resources, and and a vaccine when it does become available so that, you know, the hardest-hit communities are first in line so that they're first to recover. I think small businesses, you know, we are, firmly on our way to a new economy that is uh, anchored by technology. And therefore, you know, the technology and e-commerce will, you know, be critical to the survival of small businesses. So we need to figure out ways to support, you know, the the transition of uh, small businesses to this sort of e-commerce ecosystem, if you will, including, I think, grants for website development or subsidizing broadband capacity. Uh, Annalise alluded to the digital divide that, you know, has impacted, you know, schools and education, educational systems. But it certainly is playing out in the small business world as well if you know small businesses aren't able to compete or at least transis- transition successfully to an e-commerce presence then you know they risk falling behind closing and of course that will have de- even more devastating effects on the local communities that they anchor um i do believe that you know uh, subsidizing for example fees uh, associated with uh standing up a digital footprint is going to be part of that compendium of solutions when it comes to sort of uh, home-based care providers. I think the Biden campaign has put out in a phenomenal approach proposal that calls for the uh, elimination of waiting lists, and in an exchange, will give states uh, choice to convert their uh, current home and uh, community-based services waivers into a, a new state plan option, and and also thinking about ways to strengthen and protect workers' ability to organize you know, the Domestic Workers Bill of Rights, we desperately need to go back and dust off that piece of legislation. Uh, Essentially, all of this to say that, you know, we need a broad-based approach to closing these gaps and supporting workers, supporting the most vulnerable families, and it's not just going to come through checks, whether, you know, we keep Funding the extended UI benefits at $600, or increase that, or cut another round of stimulus checks—we, those are just short-term solutions that are certainly needed. But we really need to sort of think bold and, 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 and you know, big, and sort of thinking about how do we provide holistic support. Some of that might even involve revisiting, you know, the federal-state partnerships when it comes to critical programs. For example, the administration of unemployment insurance benefits. You know, understanding who's most impacted, who was accessed, who's eligible, whose applications were denied. We, we don't have a clear sense of what that looks like across states. So I think there's a lot of room for rethinking the federal role of the federal government in some areas. And again, to sort of just step back and think more holistically about what are the kinds of supports that we need to uh, get America going again.
3: Annalise, your thoughts on improving the social safety net?
2: I agree with with. Everything Makeda just said, and what I would add is I think in the short run, we really need to move away from, like she said, just stopgap measures like emergency relief checks and aid. Those are really important, but we need to be thinking, you know if we have two years of ongoing threat of this virus, we need to figure out a, a more sustainable way to stabilize incomes and small businesses in particular through this period of uncertainty. And how do we think about that more strategically? So the second thing I think we need to think about is, as I mentioned earlier, helping people transition into new jobs and ideally into quality jobs. So after the Great Recession, our approach to reemployment was just to try to find the quickest solution to place someone in any job. And what that ended up doing was it ended up trapping a lot of people into very low wage, poor quality jobs. So the US compared to other countries in OECD, the US spends about a 10th on these programs that support career transitions are called labor market adjustment programs. And if we were to reach the average that, that OECD countries spend, we would have to spend another 86 billion on these programs. So that's how that's how much we have disinvested in helping people make labor market, you know, upward mobility but also make, you know, change a different to a different career. And I think it's not just about funding, it's also about switching from a mindset of programs to a mindset of systems. So over the last 35 years every time there's a new problem in the labor market we'll create a new program and so we have at least 43 different programs in employment and training alone not including community college training programs and they all have these these eligibility processes that focus on weeding people out of that program and who gets access and who doesn't instead of thinking about it in terms of we have actually a system of, you know, pathways that people can progress through throughout their life, for example, with our programs is our new programs for pandemic related unemployment is because each state does it so differently. And and they have such different systems and qualifying formulas and everything is different. And and so you can't just do a one size fits all. And it's really hard to modernize technology across more than one state at a time Because they're so different because of the way that we've set up our governance. So I think we need to rethink some of those questions. And then the third priority I have is to align more of our solutions with economic development. So if there are no jobs, then we may need to be subsidizing jobs. If there's no demand, we may need to subsidize employers to hire young people, for example, or apprentices or older workers. And then we also may need to be thinking about how do you stimulate, you know, entrepreneurship and and regenerate some of those damaged local business ecosystems that relied on small businesses. And then the fourth priority area is more at the community scale, I think. So we, I think we should be treating internet service as a public utility and not, you know, an oligopolistic market. And, you know, in a general, we have to think about the rise of oligopolies, especially tech companies. And for example, Jeff Bezos—I I just saw reports that he made $13 billion in one day. You know, if if all that money that we used to spend in our local store is now going to Jeff Bezos, that's a problem because it—that money is not recirculating in your local economy. And so I think we need to think about, you know, antitrust and oligopoly oligopolis behavior in these markets and what's going to happen after this pandemic, if that continues to intensify. And then finally, you know, infrastructure investments, I think need to think strategically about how that can also be an avenue for career pathways for local residents. So if you're putting in a new hospital to do contract tracing, how do you also think about taking those contract tracers, hiring them locally, but then also giving them an on-ramp into a more a better-paying job in the long run in a health career? Or if you're building a new school or you're building a new facility in a, an anchor institution in a community with, with infrastructure funds, how do you create local hire and training and pathways for local residents to have access to those jobs?
3: The major congressional bill was the CARES Act, the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, what is each of your assessments of that bill, what worked well and what worked poorly?
2: I think the CARES Act was a great start, but it really was only an emergency stopgap. And so I think as we look at this crisis as an ongoing threat to communities and you know we're currently seeing you know repeated surges in, in virus activity i think we need to be a lot more strategic and think about medium and long term ways to cope with this in an ongoing way and so you know the expanded unemployment benefits were were you know very very generous and and many people who normally wouldn't you know qualify for unemployment because it had been pared back so much uh, now are eligible. So whether you're a gig worker, or self-employed, or even people who have low incomes or part-time jobs that normally be weeded out because of income thresholds, they're able to apply now, and I think that's wonderful. You know, having either the benefit levels were were quite low before, you know, replacing about forty percent of someone's previous earnings, and with the expanded benefits, they were a lot. Um, more generous, which allows people to pay their rent. And it it really, I think, kept our economy afloat during this process, especially through consumer spending, as we're seeing with the growing evidence we have about how effective that was. I think moving forward, though, you know, we haven't really seen a lot of relief in the form of, you know, helping people find a, a new job, or, you know, find a more remote job, or, you know, how to support like, like, you know, small businesses in a more targeted fashion, how to really think about like, if you're an employer, and your hours are, you know, this week, you have more activity, and next week, there's a lockdown, you have less, you know, how do we actually like make our systems more capable of handling that ongoing fluctuation, we have a program called Workshare, that allows an employer to to adjust the hours on a weekly or biweekly basis. And I think shifting people from regular UI models to that might might give employers the ability to you know move up and down instead of as needed which helps them you know manage the risk and meanwhile it keeps worker income stable because workers still get benefits for the hours that they're not working so we could expand solutions like that i think and you know in the long run i would love to see employers initiating those claims anyway and modernizing it so that it's not as, as difficult for employers to do so so i think there's a lot of ways that cares act was a good you know good start but you know isn't really built for the long term
3: makeda your thoughts on the cares act
0: yes i would agree with annalise's assessment that the cares act was an important first step and i do not want to detract from that It. it, it provided some critical backstops across a number of fronts. And, you know, yes, the PP the paycheck protection program was badly managed. But at the same time, we were grossly underestimating the extent of sort of the public health and a cassette like econ- economic crises. So we really need to build on the CARES Act rather than, you know, walk away or sort of claw back. Critical supports, for example, the unemployment benefit that's paying the extra $600. I think what's going to be important to, to in, the, in the HEROES Act, trying to lobby for that HEROES Act to pass, the critical supports housing protections that you know the, the HEROES Act is, includes and you know without having some sort of uh, federal moratorium on or protections for uh, renters, outside of uh, HUD issuing um, some sort of, you know, directive and guidelines, you know, I'm worried and concerned about the 23 million people who, according to Wall Street Journal a couple of days ago, aren't sure whether they're likely to make their August rent payment. And that that is extremely frightening for when you think about the uh, risk of eviction. I think, you know, uh, the Student loans is another area that both the CARES and the HEROES Act can do to boost coverage for the student borrowers who don't have federal loans and instead relied on private loans. And then also, I think the federal government here can probably take some leadership even outside of the framework of the uh, UI, I'm sorry, the HEROES Act, to think about ways to uh, start advancing ideas around standardizing UI eligibility. There's a lot of state discretion that creates critical cracks and fissures for certain workers across, you know, different localities. And so, you know, at the one hand, at the federal level, these programs are, you know, they're boldly funded they're critically needed but that implementation matters and those discrete decisions from state to state as to who's eligible you know what their prior work history or work earnings record should look like those sort of smaller decisions condition you know whether the UI functions effectively at the state and local level for the workers that need them most So again, important first step, but a lot more work to be done. And we can't continue to, I think, govern in this sort of emergency mode. Every time a a problem crops up, we respond with some funding and uh, very short-sighted legislation. We really need to sort of take stock of all of the systemic weaknesses that uh, the coronavirus um, pandemic has made laid bare. inequalities. you know, areas where the federal government and states can certainly work better to protect families and boost support for revitalizing communities. I think there's a, there's a lot to unpack here as we head into the November 2020 election. And so all uh, ears should be tuned to both President Trump's Uh, policy agenda on thinking of ways to really make this, make our governance structure more functional and uh, effective.
3: I want to thank Makeda and Annalise for sharing their thoughts on the COVID impact. They write regularly on the Brookings website, and you can find their work at brookings.edu. Let me know if you have any reactions to this podcast. You can send feedback to dwest at brookings.edu. We look forward to hearing your suggestions. Thanks for tuning in.
0: Thank you for listening to Tech Tank, a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.